Okay, let's take our Bibles and look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Continue our study in First Timothy. And you know Timothy is Paul's understudy, his student. Paul's writing letters to him to help him, guide him in a tough situation. God calls men to be pastors. Praise his name. Men do not choose to be a pastor because it sounds good. You don't sign up for the job. All God-called pastors have a command from God to preach the word, feed the flock, and endure whatever hardships may come in order to keep the church pure and be faithful to the truth of God's word. And Paul certainly had his share of hardships. Everywhere he went, they they were shooting to kill him. They were trying to devise ways to stop his preaching. And he put, he put Timothy in a church in Ephesus. And he wrote to him and encouraged him not to forget his calling. And forget his duty to serve God in that church in Ephesus. It had false teachers in it. There were so many problems. And Timothy was supposed to set everything in order. And it was tough. It was hard work because of those false teachers. Timothy was actually thinking of maybe leaving that work. And we already saw in the first chapter, Paul reminded him of his high calling and said, you have a privilege and a calling to proclaim the gospel. You can't leave. Go stay there and do this hard work. So we look at verses 18 through 20 this afternoon. We'll just read them. For the context and the flow. This command I entrust to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which pointed to you, that you by them might war a good warfare or fight a good fight. Keeping the faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning their faith, have made shipwreck of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Timothy's got a high calling. And and the Apostle Paul had trained Timothy, sent him to Ephesus, but it was God who ordained that Timothy should be saved in the first place, and then God equipped him to be a pastor. In other words, if you're called to be a pastor, if you're called to any special service for the Lord, God will equip you for that. You'll be the perfect person for that. If he hasn't equipped you for it, and you try to be that person, you will, you will fail. And you'll take a lot of other people with you. So it was God who ordained in eternity past that Timothy would be saved one day, and he would be equipped to be a pastor. And as God's servant, called to be a pastor, Timothy had a command to obey. That's what what the Apostle Paul said to him. This command I entrust unto you, Timothy. 
So this word, this command is a military order. That's the idea here. And with a military order, you all know when the colonel tells the private to do something, he orders him to do something, there's no discussion. There's no, uh, let's, let's see if we can work this out, colonel. It's an order. You obey. No options. You can see that if you turn to chapter 6, you can see Paul will expand on this in chapter 6, verse 13 and 14. He says in verse 13, I command you in the sight of God who makes all things alive and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession that you keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you can tell by the, the tone there, Timothy's telling, or Paul's telling Timothy, this is a command. This is your calling. This is not optional. You've got to keep this command. So Timothy had a duty to God and the church. Not only that, but verse 18 says Timothy was entrusted with something of infinite value. If you're still in chapter 6, look at verse 20. It's the word of God. O Timothy, keep or guard that which is committed to your trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of knowledge falsely so called. What was entrusted to Timothy? The word of God. That was his command. Hold on to this. Preach this. Don't compromise. Don't let up. Guard it. It's an infinite treasure that's been given to you. So Timothy had been given the scriptures. He had been given understanding of the scriptures. And he'd been given the ability to articulate the meaning of those scriptures. That's how God prepares a pastor. He saves him. He gives him the Bible. He gives him insight into the Bible. And he gives him the ability to tell people what the Bible says. In fact, as we go through the qualifications for elders when we get to 1 Timothy 3, really the only thing that's, that's a requirement other than character qualities is you must be able to teach. And you can't teach if you don't understand. And you can't teach if you can't articulate what you're supposed to be teaching. God prepares certain men for that. They can't prepare themselves. They go to seminary. They go to 100 seminaries for 50 years. If they're not called, they're not ready to teach and preach and present the gospel. It's just God's, it's God's grace. He prepares certain people. It's just like in the secular world. Some people are engineers. And if you aspire to be an engineer, but you're not good at math and science, you're probably not going to do well. And so he gives you certain abilities and talents, and that's what you're going to be good at. That's what he does for pastors. So Timothy was to guard the word, protect it, share it, and refute those who perverted the word of God. Only truth. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 again. You can see here that there were some prophecies involved in Timothy's life. He says, This command I entrust unto you, Timothy, my son Timothy, son in, son in faith, by the way, 
according to the prophecies which pointed to you. Timothy's calling had been confirmed by prophecies. So prophets in the New Testament, they prophesied. That means that they spoke the word of God. They taught the word of God. Sometimes they would predict things that God gave them. So in other words, they brought in new revelation, and then they would just teach the people what God said. Most of their jobs centered around preaching God's word. That's what prophets did in the New Testament. Prophesied. Forth-telling. They just told the word of God. Apparently, there were several prophecies that made it clear that Timothy was to be a minister of the gospel. You can see in chapter 4, if you turn to chapter 4, verse 14, and Paul said, Neglect not the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. So this was, this was Timothy's confirmation. They had predicted, they had prophesied, they had said that your calling is sure, Timothy, you're a pastor. Don't neglect the gift God gave you through the prophecies. And then verse 18, the last part of verse 18. That you by them might war a good warfare or fight a good fight. With all this evidence that Timothy is a man called of God to be a pastor, he can't quit. That's a point that Paul's trying to get across to him. You can't quit. God called you. He equipped you. The prophecy said, you're confirmed. You're you're a preacher. You're in a fight, Timothy. You cannot stop. It doesn't matter if it's convenient. He's going to go on to tell him, in season, out of season, you preach the word. Just keep preaching. I don't care who's there, who's opposing you. This is your calling. You're going to be in a war. You can't quit. He's encouraged to stay in the battle and fight the good fight. So warfare for Christians is inescapable for all Christians. We're in a war. We've got Satan warring against us. He hates us. He wants to destroy our testimony. He wants us to give up and say God is not really the God I thought he was because I'm going through hard times. That's what he wants you to give up. The world is alluring you and trying to distract your attention from studying the word and being in church and just go out and have a good time. And then you've got your flesh opposing you too. We're in a warfare. So that's everybody's warfare. But it's even harder for pastors because of their unique responsibilities that God has given to them. They're literally watching over the souls of the people and they must give an account one day of how they treated each individual within the congregation, what they did for them, how they edified them, how they protected them, how they turned them away when they were sinning and back to God. All of that. Every pastor is going to stand before God. What did you do with those people that I allotted to you? 
So there's pastors have the same warfare you have plus some. It just goes with the territory. That's what God planned. Okay, let's move on to verse 19. Holding or keeping the faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away or rejected, concerning their faith, have made shipwreck. So Paul's exhorting Timothy now to keep the faith and a good conscience. The faith here is what? Timothy's faith in the Scriptures. When you see the faith in Scripture, most of the time when the the word faith has the definite article before it, it's referring to the body of truth that God gave to us. The faith. This is the faith. (laughs) But you have to have personal faith in the Bible in order to make it through life. You can't just have a Bible. You have to have personal faith that this is the inerrant, authoritative, undiluted Word of God, all true, and you believe in it, and you live by it. So this Timothy's faith in the Scripture. And we know, we know that faith is taking God at His Word. Your personal faith is simply believing what God said. It's interesting because as you talk to people just by what they say about the Bible or questions they ask, you know they don't believe in the Word of God. They have all kinds of issues. And it's really not intellectual. They just want the Word of God to say something else to make their sin life less anguishing to their conscience. That's why you know, the Bible has a lot of hard things to say to us. Amen? But we want to hear the truth. We don't want anything watered down so that we feel better. No, we want God to tell us straight up. So faith is taking God at His word. Not embellishing it, not taking away from it, not not trying to spiritualize some things, make it say other things, make us more comfortable. No, the word of God is straightforward. So all Christians must keep believing that the word of God is the inerrant, infallible, God-breathed, authoritative Word of God, and its authority is above all other authorities. The Bible doesn't submit to any other authority. I don't care if it's the government. Like, we take our marching orders from God's Word. Amen? If the government says something that is not causing us to disobey God's Word, fine. As soon as it sticks its neck into God's word and says you can't sing, you can't clap, you can't meet, and all that other stuff, excuse me, I must obey God. That's our stance. And we're not trying to be rebel rousers or cause problems in society, but our allegiance is to God first. And every pastor must have his allegiance to God first, even if the congregation kicks him out. It's okay. Be faithful to the word of God. God will bless you. So Timothy was exhorted to hold on. Remain loyal. Don't give up. Don't quit. Guard that treasure that God gave you, Timothy, the Bible. So that's part of his warfare. He has to hold on. He has to keep 
the faith. He has to hold on to the scriptures. And then the second thing in verse 19, and a good conscience. You have to keep a good conscience, Timothy. We've talked about the conscience before, on and off. The conscience is that God-given faculty that functions as a warning system. You know, your body has... God has built into our bodies pain receptors. And I know everybody has maybe not known that, but they felt it. So we have pain receptors that warn us when there's a physical problem. So if you wake up one morning and your hip hurts, or your knee hurts, or your Achilles tendon hurts, you know something's wrong. You have pain. Now you have to go figure out why is it hurting, and what do I do about it? Okay, that's physical warning system. In the spiritual part of us, the soul, we have a conscience to warn us of spiritual problems. So in other words, when we do something wrong, we disobey God, we don't follow His righteous standard, which is the Scripture, His perfect law, when we don't do that, our warning system goes off. The conscience tells us something. It judges us. And it convicts us and leads us to feel bad, to feel shame, to feel guilt, and hopefully to repent of whatever that thing was that we did wrong. Today, in our modern society and in psychology, they try to tell you that guilt is a problem. You shouldn't have guilt in anything because it disturbs your life and it makes your life, it makes you stressed out. So they really try to talk you out of guilt. God is saying, no, I want you to be guilty. I want your conscience to work. But you can silence your conscience if you listen to the people say you shouldn't feel guilty. And you start defiling it and then searing it until finally you're full throttle sin and nothing bothers you. No shame, no guilt, and you're lost. We want the guilt that comes from a conscience that says you have violated God's will in your life. And you go, oh no, forgive me, Lord. I repent of that. I don't want to disappoint you. That's what the conscience is. It's like a smoke alarm. Smoke in the area goes off. Something goes wrong in your walk with the Lord, your thoughts, your words, your deeds. Alarm goes off. When we do God's will, we have a good conscience, clear conscience. Don't you like to go to bed at night and know that you, you haven't done anything against God that you haven't repented of, and you haven't done anything against any person that you haven't repented of and gone and asked for forgiveness for in your family, work, anywhere? You put your head on the pillow and you say, you know what, I'm good. By God's grace, I got through this day and I'm all confessed up. That's the way it should be. That's what Paul said when he was talking to Governor Felix in Acts 24. He said, I exercise myself always to have a conscience void of offense before God and man. And that's how all of us should be. 
If you want a good conscience, a clear conscience, no guilt, you're not trying to cover anything, you confess your sin, you go to God, say, God, I did this wrong, you go to the person you offended, would you forgive me? And you do this every day, all day. Did I do something wrong? Did I offend anybody? Did I say something wrong to my wife, to my husband? You go right to them. Forgive me, honey. Ah. How many of you have experienced this where you did something wrong, you carried it for a little while, and then you went and finally fessed up to God and that person? And the load just left your shoulders. Just left. You feel better. That's a good conscience. That's what Timothy is supposed to have. A good con- He's to keep a good conscience. He wants Timothy... Paul wants Timothy to keep guarding the truth of God's word and do it with a good conscience. And there's always this relationship between doctrinal purity and purity of life. They they go together. Intimate connection between doctrinal purity and purity of life. So Timothy is to guard this word. Know it and guard it and live it out because theological error usually is accompanied by compromised morality. You see it in false teachers. Theological error, such things as wrong views of the Bible. You're going to go bad if you have wrong views of the Bible. If you don't believe it's the inspired, inerrant, God-breathed, authoritative word of God, you're going to go wrong somewhere. If you have perverted and false views of Christ, of the Trinity, of salvation, of lordships, so many things, wrong views, which false teachers have. They were false teachers at Ephesus, wrong views of Christ, wrong views of salvation. It leads to immorality in most cases. In other words, freedom to do. Your pastor is a false teacher. He's going to give you freedom to sin. He's not going to say a thing about it. We don't have to turn here, but listen to 2 Peter 2. He's, He's referring to false teachers. They have eyes full of adultery. They cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. A heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, describing false teachers. They can't cease from sin. Why? They don't believe the Bible. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, here's what they do. They allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escape from them who live in error. The people who are trying to do better and learn God's word, they get a false teacher, and he allures them. And he says, it's no problem if you do this, and it's no problem if you do that. And they're trying to live a good life, and they're... They're convinced that this teacher is teaching them the right thing and he gives them freedom to sin. And they're in worse shape than when they first started. Doctrinal purity, intimately connected with purity of life, moral purity. Ungodly living from pastors who are false teachers ruins the church. It's like a, it's like a poison. It's like leaven. Just spreads throughout. Unless these false teachers are dealt with and discipline is implemented in the church. So, 
Timothy must hold to the faith, keep believing in the Scriptures and guard them, and have a good conscience in his own life of purity to guard the purity of the church. That's a pastor's responsibility, to be an example to the flock of Christ-likeness and moral purity and make sure that nobody is sinning without proper church discipline so that that leaven doesn't spread to everybody else. All right, so Paul Paul says at the end of verse 19, if you look there, some having put away this faith and good conscience concerning their faith have made shipwreck of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, they may learn not to blaspheme. Not everybody who's a pastor holds to the faith and a good conscience. Like these guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Some reject God's truth and they silence their own conscience. And they destroy themselves and others. That's what the false teachers were doing in Ephesus. They did not want to have a pure, clean conscience. They held to a theology that fit their sinful desires and lifestyle. That's what false teachers do. They bring God's doctrine down so they can live the way they want to in sin and not have to feel guilty about it because they find ways to justify their sin with various verses in the Bible. They teach that to their flock. They held these false teachers in Ephesus that Timothy is supposed to correct. They held to a theology that fit their lifestyle, and they went shipwrecked. A good conscience is like a rudder on a ship to guide it, so you can give it direction. Our conscience guides us in our Christian life, but these men rejected faith and a good conscience, and they ended up shipwrecked. They had no rudder, in other words, and they couldn't steer themselves According to God's word, they went over to waterfalls and they sank. They crashed. So Paul names these two folks in verse 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander. We don't have any information on them as to their background. Hymenaeus is mentioned again in 2 Timothy 2.17 with another false teacher, Philetus. doesn't really matter what their background was. We know what their current status is in the church. False teachers. Paul is taking action to deliver these men. He says, I have delivered them unto Satan. So what does it mean to be delivered over to Satan? It means you don't want to go through this. You don't want to be delivered over to Satan. It means that Timothy put them out of the church. 
He did that also to an unrepentant believer in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That man would not repent. He put, them, he put that young man out of the church. He was very upset with the Corinthians because they, they thought that wasn't that bad. And they thought it was an act of love just to let it go. And Paul said, I'm not there with you physically, but I'm there with the spirit. And I'm turning that man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so his spirit might be saved. Ultimately. That's what he did with these two guys. Kicked them out of the church. So there's two reasons for church discipline. One is to try to restore the sinning person. And if you go through Matthew 18 and take the steps that God has provided for us, it works really well. And it's the way we we must go with church discipline. If one man sins, and you know about it, you go and you speak to him about his sin. If he repents, you've won your brother. If he doesn't repent, he just won't repent, he just refuses to give in, you take one or two more people with you. Now you've got witnesses. Every truth is established by by the mouth of two or three witnesses. And if he still doesn't repent, then you take it to the church and you tell the church and everybody in the church is praying for that person. Everybody's telling that person, please repent, please confess your sins. He still refuses. He's put out of the church. He's excommunicated. Okay. While he's in the church, while he's a member of the church, he's protected because God has designed the church to protect us among many other things. You've got the brethren who love you. The brethren are looking after you. But if you're delivered over to Satan, kicked out of the church, there's nobody watching after you now. You're on your own, and Satan has you without the protection that you used to have as a person who was in membership in the church. In other words, you're treated as an unbeliever. We don't make the final conclusion on that, but you're like a tax gatherer or a heathen. You're put out... And now you're on your own. You've got to face Satan. You lose your protection, and Satan can devour you without that protection. And that can include physical punishment. That's what this word means in verse 20 at the end where he says, I've delivered them unto Satan that they may learn or be taught not to blaspheme. That word has the idea of training through physical punishment. Who knows how a person who's put out of the church will end up? Could be car accidents, could be a devastating sickness, it could be facing some gang that beats you up or kills you. It could be death too, by the way. You can remember God's discipline of the people in the Corinthian church when they abused the Lord's Supper. That he made many of them very sick and actually took the lives of some of them prematurely. They weren't turned over to Satan. They were just directly by God dealt with because they would not repent of their sin. 
So training through physical punishment is what Paul has determined would take place with Hymenaeus and Alexander. He delivered them over to Satan, kicked them out of the church. They might learn not to blaspheme. These false teachers were blasphemers. How would you like to have a pastor that's a blasphemer from the pulpit? That's what these guys were. So understand something about blaspheming. It's not just cursing or saying bad things about God. To blaspheme is to misrepresent God in any way. This is serious. To misrepresent his truth, his name, his works, his attributes, anything about God that's misrepresented is blasphemy. That's what the false teachers were doing. They misrepresented his word, his attributes, his name, his plan of salvation. Totally misrepresented. We think there's a great Jewish influence there in Ephesus, and some of these guys were teaching that salvation by works. Totally misrepresents God. If there's one thing that's really clear in Scripture, it's that you cannot earn your salvation. Nothing by works. I mean, nobody should ever say, well, I don't understand that. Okay, you're not good enough to do anything to to make God happy with you. But Jesus did everything to make God happy. If you believe in him, God will be happy with you. The clearest teaching in Scripture, on the most important topic in Scripture, how does a sinner get right with God? These guys were twisting it, turning it. That's blasphemy. Causing people to destroy their own lives by thinking they can be saved by doing a bunch of religious things. So these were blasphemers. And they were going to be taught not to blaspheme. To speak evil of God. To misrepresent anything about God is blasphemy. The false teachers were guilty. They were going to be punished physically by Satan in order to stop their blasphemy. They have to learn the hard way. We don't know what happened to them. But that's why they were kicked out of the church. They would not repent. They have to learn not to misrepresent God, even if it meant death. So Timothy's assignment was difficult. We'll see that as we progress through 1 Timothy. But he had been equipped for it. God prepared him. Paul prepared him. But we also have been called by God to serve him in the world and in the church. We have to keep the faith also. Amen? Good conscience also. Stay in the fight to be holy and faithful even though our enemies are strong. Just hang in there. Keep your eyes on Jesus. We have Christ in us. We have the Holy Spirit in us. And Jesus is using us. As he builds his church, he's actually using us in the building of the church, which is amazing, but he does that. He uses faithful pastors and faithful congregations who are fully committed to him to build his church. It's amazing, isn't it? He would take sinners and do something like that, but he does. So keep praying for your pastor. Pray that I will keep true to the scriptures that I will keep a good conscience, I will fight the good fight for God's glory and for your benefit, and I will not grow weary 
in the process. I know you all pray for me, and I praise God for that. I feel the power, especially Sunday mornings, and especially when I don't feel like doing any more. And God answers your prayers, and I just keep pressing on and on and on to guard this great treasure that he's given to us, to preach it, to exposit it, and to keep a good conscience in my own personal life so that God is glorified and the saints are edified and his church continues until God raises up the next group of men to take over the church and the next group after them. Why? Because there will always be the church, the true church, until Christ comes. Because that's how he glorifies himself. Jesus will not lose the battle, he said it, amen? I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We are the church. So you pray for me as I pray for you. And by his grace, we will continue till he comes or till he takes us. And we will honor him in the process. That's what we want to do. Amen. 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 Everybody agree? Brother Ken, can you close our time?